0: I remember a time a designer came to me, I disagreed a lot with this designer, but he was a wonderful guy. He came and said, hey, I was talking with the other folks and there was some frustration expressed around how we're working and stuff like that. And I brought up that like, I'm good at design and, you know, you're good at QA and and whatnot, whatever whatever the disciplines that were there was. And maybe Ben's here because he's good at the process stuff and maybe we should listen. To him when he talks about process stuff and I tell you that was an emotional moment to have him kind of express that to me but one of the things he followed up with is it would be very helpful if I knew why you were changing what you're changing and what I realized is like I I thought I'd said like, well, this is why I'm doing this in this way. This is why I'm doing this in this way. But I realized that like, I hadn't actually prioritized them understanding why I was making the changes I was making. I was sort of assuming that like, because I'd come from a place where that trust was already so established that when I went in and I said, hey, let's do this in a different way that people would get on board. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah. You you know what you're doing. You're an expert in your craft. And I remember actually sometimes expressing frustration of like, do they not understand that like, this is a craft and I'm trained at being good at it. Like I'm good at this stuff and I can help them. And that's what I'm trying to do. And why are they so, why are they so against me? Why won't they listen? When you're a leader, you it's your responsibility to build trust and to explain why you're changing things. Because as a leader, the decisions you make impact others in huge ways. You disrupt their life.
1: Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Karsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made.
0: Hey there, welcome to Building Better Games. In this podcast, I talk about my second stint working on the champion team within League of Legends at Riot Games. This is some number of years ago, and this was sort of an interview formatted podcast. Some quick context, the champion team had shifted from creating a new champion every two weeks to producing a champion every few months at the time. The champions were way better, but everything was taking longer and longer to build, and this shift was concerning to the leadership. I had just finished working on the Summoner's Rift update, which was a separate large product that had run for several years. And the leads wanted me to go back to Champion Team, where I'd spent a bit of time working a couple of years before, and see if I could improve things. I was moving from a team I was very comfortable with to a team that had changed a ton since I'd last seen it. New people, new processes, new culture. Since I'd just done a great job on a large project, there was an expectation that I would do really well. Unfortunately, I can honestly say it wasn't something I was interested in doing at the time. I was trying to prove myself to others. I also didn't want to be there very long before moving to something I would enjoy. So that's some background, and now we'll get right into it.
1: What was the backdrop of League of Legends at the time? Like what was happening that was sort of driving the strategy or the need of the champion team at that time?
0: This was at a time when a couple of other big games had come out. Not sure if this was Overwatch or there was another one, but a couple of other big games had come out and we were starting to see there were some concerns around like, hey, how's the player base doing? Right. We want to make sure we can this game keeps growing. It stays engaging. and we weren't quite sure how all the different parts, all the different teams of League of Legends related to League in terms of its success. So there was a concern that while we'd switched to a model of making, in the champion team specifically, much higher quality individual characters, perhaps because we were creating so many fewer of them, there was a negative impact to the player base. And and could we get that back so that the game stayed more engaging as a result of the champions we were creating? A lot of this was very speculative, like it was really, there were some people at Riot who thought when we originally moved away from a two-week, every two-week model, that we were like, we were gonna destroy the game. And that had been proven to be untrue, at least to that point. And I think it's certainly proven untrue now.
1: It's interesting to note too, and you've, you've mentioned this before, and I remember this, that there was a little bit of a, for lack of a better phrase, a slippery slope. As each character, each champion came out and was successively higher quality, it taxed the system and the team more and more and created more of a burden for them to produce at a similar or higher level of quality. So so there was like this escalating quality thing that was happening yes. all the time. And by the time you showed up, I, you, know, you had mentioned that one of the big issues was that the team was stressed by that insanely high quality bar. I mean, these characters were world-renowned in some cases and like iconic.
0: And the idea and was high that... Bar every one that we created would be better than all the other ones we'd ever created from a quality perspective. And actually that, that speaks to something I started kind of pushing at when I, when I arrived, I'm skipping a little bit ahead, but I'll just do, because you brought that up. There was a a thing that I kind of got into debates with, which is what does quality mean? What is quality? What is quality in this case? What does it mean to have a high quality champion? And because that's the main output of the champion team. And for me, I was grounded in this idea that was core to Riot broadly. And it was player value is what we're trying to create. At all times, we're moving towards player value. I mean, Aaron, like you remember, this was just the way it was, right? Like everybody's oriented. Spire being the most player-focused game company in the world. Player value, player value. Like you walk into somewhere and you pitch an idea. It's like, what's the player value? You're going to get that question. You're going to have to answer it. And actually, I think a lot of that's really, really good. Like there was many, many bad ideas that were rejected because... When you ask the question, what player value does this add? You get the answer you don't like and you're like, yeah, let's not do that then.
1: And I want to ask you a question here because you talk a lot about this when we're teaching. Actually, Um, this is a sticking point because so many game production studios and so many software development companies struggle with wrapping their heads around what that means and what that is in context. And You just said customer value. Is like, is what you hinge on there. So, a lot of times when people think quality, they think of how pretty is the artwork, or how high end are the graphics, or like how fast does it run on my PC, or like, you know, and it's definitionally can be different. How do you, how did you understand quality in the context of the champion team, and what did you see? as far as the rest of the team's perception around what quality was?
0: For me, quality was never actually, this is going to sound terrible, but quality is never the point. Quality is something that enables the point when I think about it, right? And so quality is important, but it's always a sub piece of something else that you're trying to achieve. So the way, like, and in, in, At the broadest sense, it's I'm trying to change the world in some way. And if I can do that through a low quality experience, but I can still do that, then maybe a low quality experience is all I need. Now, that can cause huge problems because if you go low quality in your tech stack, it means you're gonna have major problems later on in a software as a service or game as a service model. If you do that in the art side, it means you're gonna start looking dated and that may be a problem. It may start knocking you out of the runnings. But when I thought of quality, and again, this was part of that League of Legends quality initiative that was going on at the time and had been going on for a couple of years, what they tended to mean in, the, in a phrase that was thrown around that we, it was like, what is this? How do you def- even define this was AAA, you know, AAA that's quality. Tra- quality is, you know, you, you have a big orchestra do your score and you have the best, you know, technology for all of your models and you've got the newest shaders and you've got all this different stuff and it like, it looks amazing. And, you can tell every individual piece of it is just crafted by the best craftsman that the world has ever seen. And um, the challenge that I saw was that we were conflating that idea of quality with the idea of value and player value specifically. And I remember actually having a conversation with someone where I, I said like, hey, we're focusing really hard on quality, but what's the player value? And they're just sort of, they, they said, kind of said back, quality is player value. And I was like, Oh, shoot. No, 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 it's not. And and again, unless we're talking about different definitions here, but that's problematic. Because what that means is that every time you're going that spending that extra week doing that thing, because you consider it higher quality, you believe that that's because that means more player value. And it doesn't always mean that sometimes you can make something higher quality, but Either the vast majority or all of your players may not even notice you did it. It may be something minor. It may be in your craft. It may be in your discipline. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. I don't want to say that, but I will say that that stuff is intended to be in service of the experience. You know, I knew a um, really good artist. I say he's the best principal artist I ever worked with. Certainly top two, but probably the best. And something he said was, "I'm not an artist. I'm not an environment artist. I am a game developer." I always like that. I always loved that phrase. It, it's so important to remember that what we're doing here is we're making a game. We're making a game for people. Is the game good? Is it compelling? Is it engaging? Is it providing the experience that our players want? If If your visuals are totally janky, if everything looks kind of weird, but you're still creating that game that is awesome, you're winning. But if all of the graphics and everything like that is are phenomenal and the game itself like if that's all high quality but the game itself isn't fun you missed player value and you potentially missed it because you were so focused on just being definitional like genre defining in the quality of all the individual crafts you created the the experience is not any in particular craft i mean the closest you could probably argue is that like if you're going to get one discipline right like get design right because it's that is the core of the player experience when it comes to games but other than that you know almost anything else it can be at varying levels of quality and even in design you have to make trade-offs against things like time and the constraints of the system so so you
1: came in and you saw an environment where there was this sort of ever escalating kind of quality bar and that and quality bar, as you described it now, means kind of like aesthetic quality, it means like
0: craft, I would say craftsmanship. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, w- from you, you come in and you see this paradigm as the sort of dominant paradigm on the team. What was the impact that that was having as, cause you're an operational guy. What mm-hmm. was, what was the impact that that was happening, having on the operations of the team? And what impact was that having on, the team's ability to deliver in their, in their outcomes.
0: Yeah. So the, and and again, I'll view it as the conflation, like the, the complete confusion of the two concepts of player value and quality. So that what that meant is that if somebody came into a meeting and said, Hey, I can do something and it's going to make the champion that we're developing higher quality to answer that question. No felt antithetical to what riot was trying to be. Because we are a company that is about improving, like increasing and ever growing player value. You know, at the time it was just like, that was where it it probably still is. Like we want to create the highest player value experiences. Like we're always raising player value. And so when I come in and I say, hey, I can, I think I can make this better. And it's just going to take me X amount of time. If you said, no, we don't need to do that. You were almost, it was like, what? No, of course we do. We need to take all the time we need to, to make this the best it can possibly be. Because that's the point. The highest quality champion is the max player value champion. And obviously, when you take that all the way to the end, it becomes ridiculous, especially in spaces around art or design. You can be tweaking endlessly. There is no limit to like, you know, we think of the, I'm going to go to, to music, but you think of like some of the most iconic soundtracks that have ever been written by John Williams, like Star Wars, Jaws, Harry Potter, and Superman and these things. Could he have made them better with more time? Probably. And if I gave him more and more time, could he have continued to make them better? Probably. He certainly could have kept changing things and trying to reach making them better. And there's no point where he would have hit a, a, a line that said, now I know it's the best it could ever possibly be. There would always have been a question, maybe it could have been even better than it was now. and. I call that like there's a dis, this diminishing returns curve around what, what the when I view player value, it's always on a diminishing returns curve. It's like a logarithmic line, right? You get a lot early on when you first start putting in like, oh, I'm putting this champion together. What is this champion? How does it work? Okay, now we've actually figured out this champion is there. It has a set of skills that we're not sure of, but it's closer to right. And we can start play testing it, but it's really janky. But you actually get a lot of value potentially from that already. And it's certainly a lot of learning. And as that keeps going, eventually it starts, you start refining it more and more and more. And the higher quality you make it at some point, you know, a massive jump in quality adds very little player value, I would say, towards the end. Or I would should say a massive jump in the amount of work you've put into it leads to a very small increase in the player value. And so there's this diminishing returns curve that just keeps repeating every time you start to finish a a champion. And I believe that's true in almost all creative endeavor, you know, writing, music, art, like you get a lot out of the initial. And, And basically you're trying to figure out, we talk about this in some of the training that we do, you're trying to figure out where do I draw the line? When is it good enough? And the problem is that question, when is it good enough, was almost not allowed to be asked. Because if I could come up with a way to make it better, then I should do that. You have a specific
1: story that you tell about Yasuo
0: here. Yeah, so there's the Yasuo. So I wasn't on the team, so I'll I'll put this out there. I wasn't on the team when this happened, but Yasuo is a character in the game that's sort of based on a samurai-esque archetype. And they have a sword. And the question is, the question that was asked was, well, wait, what do we do we do when the sword is at his side? Because, you know, when samurai move around, their swords are in their sheaths, and then they pull them out when they fight. So when he was walking around, he has the sword at his side. It is, and this has improved a lot since, but the tech stack and the tool stack for the artists was not great. And it was actually very difficult at the time, may still be, to have Yasuo actually sheath his sword and have that be like something that really works well. And it would take a bunch of work from a lot of different disciplines to make that look look correct and look good. And to me, this was an example. And, and you know, I don't know, There's, the, I could still get in debates with people about this, but I think having Yasuo, a small character in an isometric game, actually have a sword that goes into the sheath and that like all kind of moves exactly properly, as opposed to doing something else that maybe would have taken a lot less time added fairly low player value because that wasn't the important part of who Yasuo was that that wasn't a key element to to what made that character awesome and and like Yasuo is a very popular character massive investment went into that both the decision to do it and then the number of disciplines that were engaged and one of the things that I kind of say about the story is every time you do that it's an opportunity cost right every The thing is when you're in that diminishing returns curve and you hit a point where you've delivered you know a lot of value and and you realize that like we're not we're investing a lot of work to get a lot less value now you should be asking the question should i actually be now working on something else where i can get a lot more bang for my buck because the idea is to maximize player value over time and that diminishing returns curve that hits all creative endeavor means that you're investing more and more and more into less and less and less. And like the, these sorts of concepts were, I'm not like, there were plenty of parts of Riot that I think understood this and understood this very well, but, but somehow again, because there was the conflation of quality and player value within the team. I had been lost that like curve had been lost and so when I went in those were some of the ideas I was like trying to untangle and and they were I was actually surprised at just how entrenched they were and again the debates I would get into where people would would just straight up say no quality is player value if we make this champion you know look a little bit better if we that's all player value and again it's the, the hard thing is it's not that they're necessarily wrong per se it's all about that opportunity cost because when you're doing that when you're working on it, when it's already, like, you know, a phrase I used to use was because people didn't like good enough. they were like, no, we're, we do better than good enough. I'm like, okay, how about awesome enough? Because we have to draw a line somewhere. Like, what is awesome enough? Is it awesome enough yet? We want to go past good. I get it. Right. Is it great enough? Is it something like you pick your word, but there's a gotta be a point where we say this is enough. And, and if you never can pick that point. You asked originally, like, what was the impact to the development? It was that over time, the champions just started getting more and more complicated and taking longer and longer. So you saw this conflation with quality and value,
1: mm-hmm. or I should say conflation between quality and value and the impact that that was having on the team. What other opportunities did you see when you first came in and and what did you decide to focus on
0: as a leader? The The way everything was being tracked was still in this very idealistic Gantt chart of like, here's our sort of timelines cascading out that was trying to predict when things would be done, which, especially in this environment, there there were some good things about this idea of we want to iterate and we want to make it better. But when you do that, when you enable iteration across a set of different disciplines that are all lined up with each other, like there's a, there's a natural flow you need to go through to make a character. You start with concept and design and narrative kind of coming together to form the character. And then the art pipeline kind of goes concept to 3D model to texture. And so often those would be the, the same person, but they could be different depending on the studio you're in. And then you've got to rig it and then you've got to animate it. And then you've got to do visual effects, and then you're going to do audio, and then you're going to QA it. And then, you know, there's there's all these disciplines that are involved. And the art pipeline alone is a bunch of steps long. And audio can't really go. Like, they can't, they might be able to say, this is what we think the champion's sound, you know, set might be like. But until they actually see the visual effects in the game, they can't create those audio sounds because they got to match them to the to the visual effects they have to create they have to make the sound match and similarly you step back again the visual effects needs to see the animation because if i don't know what the animation is i don't know where i start the visual effect it's going to look janky if i don't know that so i can give you some idea so there's this huge pipeline that is part of creating a champion and it's in some ways it's non-negotiable you can fall into a trap where you say, okay, well, how much time does it take any particular discipline to do their part? And then you try to map that out. And for some things, this works really well. In some cases, if I'm just making a 1,000 NPCs for some strategy game or something, and I'm not really worried about anyone's individual quality, I might just tell every discipline, look, you've got a week, get it to a decent enough spot. And wherever it is, it's done at the end of the week, pass it on to the next discipline. And you you could set up a pipeline for that where you rapidly produce a lot of different characters or NPCs or models for a game. And that's not. I'm not saying that's bad. In this case, though, with each of these intended to be iconic and incredibly high quality, it's very difficult to say for any particular character exactly how long, well in advance, any particular stage was going to take, right? It's much easier to do an animation for a biped than it is for something with eight legs. Not only does an eight-legged creature like a spider or something have more things that you need to animate carefully, but it's also not something that most animators are as experienced animating. And so there's a learning curve as they even go in and try to figure out what looks good. And they might have to do study if they hadn't done monsters or spiders before in their in their past. They have to go watch in order to hit the highest quality. And we had this laid out. So there was this plan. And what that what it was happening was we would fall behind somewhere in the plan. And the, this is one of the challenges with the pipeline. When you fall behind somewhere, you fall behind at the end. You never catch up. Everybody always wants to catch up. It's always like, oh, well, you know, even let's say really early on, it took longer than we thought to get the concept right. And then there's this idea like, well, that's okay. We've still got many weeks to get it done. We'll just get everybody else to do it fast. It doesn't work that way. They still have to spend all their time getting it right and potentially more. And so these, these st- like stages of the pipeline as a way to try to understand when anything was going to be done weren't working. And again, this was doubly difficult because anybody at any time could say hey I could make the character higher quality by doing x and now it was like oh we'll just do that and it was like well that's going to take me an extra week that's fine don't worry about it just do it we'll figure it out later and so there was that was one of the problems that was emerging i think another one that i saw was the and these I, these are a lot of these are related discipline silos were we oriented as developers on the team as members of the team primarily towards our discipline craft or towards the cross-functional delivery of value of the final champion. And in many cases, you were oriented towards and incentivized towards being the best craftsman you could be. You are potentially sitting with the other craftsmen that were like you like you were sitting within your discipline or within your expertise, and you were then evaluated by those people on how well your craft was executed, not on how well you were serving the needs of the character towards its ultimate player value to to the end user of of the game. So i I say those were two other things that emerged. Aaron, you asked the question earlier, what did I focus on? And it's like, man, part of me has trouble with that because it was like, in some sense, I focused on nothing. And it's because in some sense, I was focusing on everything. And I was like, Hey, I don't have a lot of time. Let's go in and we'll got to fix this. And we'll get this figured out. we're going to get these pods organized, like these sub teams into a better shape. We're gonna, you know, get this quality bar figured out. So it's it's better. I'm going to get the other leaders trained up. And I was like, trying to do it, all of it. And one of the best pieces of advice is actually some of the other leaders in the space gave me was Ben, you know, you're know, you trying to solve all this from the highest possible level. Could you actually go in and work on one of the teams to see what it's like? And I got that from people on the team and I got that from leaders in the team. I think it was really good advice because actually I didn't understand exactly what was going on until I did that, until I stepped down and really started engaging with individual developers and being responsible for the specific delivery of a character, a champion that was being created. So yeah, I I think there were a lot of a lot of negatives that came from the way that was set up. And looking back, you know, it was like, well, what would you do differently now? In terms of that, it was, well, I would have gone, knowing what I know now, I would have said, don't try to, as a leader, just jump into something for a couple of weeks and have some sort of massive impact and then walk away or a couple of months. You don't know what the scope of the problem is. You can't necessarily solve it in two months or six months or whatever. Be present with the team. And that also means... Don't go into a team just to prove yourself with the actual strong interest somewhere else. Aaron, you did ask, where did I focus? And initially it was, well, what's going on and how can I create more predictability around the space? How do I get, like, the, I think that there was, I got into a lot of debates around this, actually. It's a champion in League of Legends. Again, it's the character, it's the person's avatar when they play the game. There are some common elements to every single one of them. They all have a set of abilities that the player uses in game. They all have a set of animations and visual effects or VFX that are related to those abilities. They have to be able to walk. They have to be able to run. They have to do recall. There has to be a death animation and a spawn animation. There's a bunch of things that are similar about all the champions that exist in League of Legends. They all share the, the types of work that are done on them to some degree. All those things are the stuff that are a champion. And what's interesting to note is they are not the value a champion provides. They contribute to it. The value a champion provides is being unique and iconic. It is being resonant with some, usually not all, I'd be very careful about all, some amount of the player base that they're gonna look at that champion and say, this is the champion that I want to be my avatar because I like their story or I like how they look or I like the design, how the abilities work together. And I will say this was something that that team was incredibly good at was going and refining down what is it that's awesome about this particular champion. I'm saying some things and I want to call this out. Like I can critique this because I was there and because in some level, my job was to critique and try to figure out how to do this faster or better or differently or more efficiently. Like in in a many ways this was a very experienced team at doing what it did and they were very good at it and so there were a lot of things that they were doing so well that i, I sometimes look at other games that have lines lineups of characters and i'm just like you you didn't underst- you, you don't know the what is basic right you missed fundamentals that this team on league of legends was actually really good at and again one of that was like what is super special about this character so the reason I mentioned all the stuff that goes into making a character is it was really easy to say, we don't have to prioritize. We don't have to make really hard product calls around this because they all just need the same things. They need four abilities and they need a a walk animation and they need, you know, a death animation and all the like, and the particles to go around the the visual effects to go around that. And the, they need a model and they need a, you know, we need to start with a concept, blah, 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 audio, you know, all these things, this is what they need. They need all these things. So why bother prioritizing? I can't ship a character. I can't ship a champion until it has all these aspects, right? No point in prioritization, right? It's a plan driven approach. Just do all these things. And that was another trap that I ran into around, I think, the leadership, because all of those individual things, yes, we did need all of them, but how much and to what degree and how much w- was any particular part of that contributing to what made that character unique and special and resonant with whatever audience it was resonant with. And this this gets into, I think, the role of a product leader in the artistic space is Defining where do we push effort, more effort towards, and where do we peel effort back and say this is good enough, or again, awesome enough. The product lead role, or the the team lead role, or whatever it is, whoever it is that's doing that, can step in. Like even that, you know that that artist I was talking about, that kind of said, "I'm a game developer, not an artist." They can step in and they can say, "It's that's that's as far as that needs to go. Work on this other part because, you know, maybe you'd have a, a, a character that would have four abilities." often one or two of them would be considered more iconic to the character, and another couple were more supporting to what the character was. But those iconic ones are the ones that you really want. If you're going to invest a bunch of time in, invest them in those iconic moments that this character has, that this champion has. And it's okay for the others to just be sufficient, to just be enough to, to fill out that experience. Don't make them bad. Like They don't have to be crappy or look terrible, but... Don't go crazy trying to make all those the things that weren't so core to what the player value was the absolute best they could possibly be. Invest that time in the the highest sort of bang for buck space, which is in that making it iconic, or potentially in stopping and working on the next so, champion.
1: So how how do you you know that that is that problem as you articulate it is clear and and again we reference many experiences where we've gone into teams and seen that those types of things are where the the money is, if you will. So how do you, or how did you help make people aware of that? Probably there, there must've been some kind of alignment, some kind of like negotiation around like, Hey, I'm seeing that this is an issue. I'm seeing that this is a challenge. You know, in, in the past, when you've told these stories you've referenced, The role of that product manager and your relationship with that product manager. Like, how did you actually get the wheels moving towards helping the team understand that quality value conflation and how to make better decisions around
0: that, that were more expedient or whatever, whatever the goal was. In some sense, I think this is a this is a story of failure to some degree because I think in a lot of ways I didn't, or at least at the time I thought I didn't. It's fascinating though when you ask that question. The first thing I go to is a lot of systems thinker in how I was approaching this. And for me, a lot of it was about trying to shift how people were organizing and discussing and who they were talking to about the problem of what it meant to create an awesome character. So a lot of my focus was actually on trying to get people out of their disciplines and into a team of cross-functional people focused on the same thing.
1: And, and, and then, what, what was your hope that they would see or realize or learn in, in doing that?
0: If I have three different disciplines, like if I have a narrative person, so someone who's doing like the story writing, just which is not trivial, it's actually a very, very difficult job. I have an, a concept artist that's trying to come up with something from nothing, right? I'm trying to generate based on a story or a description of a design or something trying to like, just give you something new and original. Also not easy. Like this is this is a very specialized and difficult thing to do. And then I have a designer who's trying to figure out how multiple abilities will mesh together and test that out inside of a game setting. I take those three different disciplines. What's similar about them? Like, what do they unify around? And it is the idea of the champion the value of the champion. What's, what is unique? What is resonant about the champion? All three of them are contributing meaningfully to that. And if they, but when they talk, if a designer is doing that and he's only talking with other designers, he's only seeing the design problems. He's not, he's having less exposure and better ones will be better at understanding that there are challenges that the concept artist is facing or the story writer is facing. But when you bring that group together and you say, Hey, the three of you need to create a a seed of what is going to become an amazing champion. There's, an exposure that they have to the entirety of what goes into that. And I'm simplifying this because we we did do something like this. We're at the very beginning of a champ. You only had three disciplines primarily working on it, plus, plus production, plus like some leadership. But it was mostly just those three. Later on, like I said, it expanded to over a dozen disciplines eventually that were trying to figure this out. The more you can have them talking to each other, though, and understanding what are the challenges that you are these other disciplines are facing and what's my part in helping them or potentially even making a trade-off where, Hey, I'm going to make, sorry, I'm going to make your life really hard, right? Like a concept artist that goes and makes an eight-legged character has to recognize I just made animation and rigging have a more difficult time. Like it's going to take them longer. And being aware of that is something that if I'm only thinking about making the coolest concept and only talking to concept artists, I may not have as much awareness of more experience means you are more aware of that. If something's always just thrown over the wall, you don't get the exposure to what their challenge was. So then the other the other thing you mentioned, like the, the challenges, sort of my experience with another product manager in the space, Aaron, when we moved buildings, we ended up staying further apart. And that really negatively impacted the relationship that had been developing, or that I would say was like, we were we were pretty close before that. We understood what each other were trying to do. And that was one of the people that I really had a lot of debate around the idea of, can you prioritize this? Like, and I, and I was saying like, it's really important that we prioritize where we're investing effort. And uh, this sort of was like, yeah, but we just, every character needs all the same things. Every champion needs the same things. And I think so many of the issues that emerged between me and that other producer were actually more because we weren't we weren't on good terms with each other. And what I found out later, and there was quite a, an intense conversation we had where we both ended up basically exposing to the other that we feel alone. Right. And I I was sort of like, I feel alone. I feel like I'm trying to turn this team around, like help us actually not take so long to make champions, but still make good quality. I'm not trying to make bad champions. Like I don't want to turn us into a team that just produces garbage. Like I want there to be, I want these champions to be amazing, but I want us to do that in a way that meets the broader needs of the product, right? That, that continues to keep up the engagement and all these different things. And I feel very alone in the change efforts I'm doing. And that producer kind of exposed to me and it was very, it was a challenging thing for me to hear, but it was important for me to hear. And I wish I'd again, stayed closer to be Aware of this. They they were sort of like, I feel completely alone. This team is being stressed and stressed and stressed and it's struggling. And I am trying to keep them engaged. I'm trying to keep them happy. I'm trying to keep them oriented in the right, like oriented towards just being here and showing up and being excited to be a part of champion team. Like it should be exciting to be here. And their take on me was that I was actually like breaking that apart. I was just adding this extra stress and I was trying to drive these changes and they weren't helping with that. And I was actually like hurting the team. And again, it was a really valuable conversation. It was also a really powerful or painful conversation for me to to go through because what I realized is there was, I, I view it now, again, this is sort of the systems thinker, there was role confusion. That producer was phenomenal at bringing a team together, at encouraging teams, at making like like having teams get excited at celebrating the successes that had occurred. I think it's some, in some sense, of protecting the team from some of the external interference that was always out there. They had a lot of skills. They were they were very capable. And what I was looking to them to do was to be the person who's doing the prioritization and the really fine understanding of value and all these things, and that. I'm not going to say they could or couldn't have done those things, but that wasn't the way they viewed their role. That wasn't what they were trying to do. That wasn't how they saw themselves leading. And so for me, there was this void of that. And for them, there was this void of like, you're supposed to be helping me as I hold this team together and we continue to overcome the challenges that are before us. And so they felt alone. I felt alone. And what was fascinating is, you know, we sat two rows apart and we just had stopped talking. And again, I, I don't know, like there's there's a bunch of ways that could have gone differently. That's how it ended up playing out. And um, I think, you know, I'm I'm not mad at that person and I don't think they're mad at me. And I'm, in fact, I know they're not mad at me. I had a conversation with them or a brief exchange with them sometime after this. And there's actually a lot to celebrate about what happened and, and what was achieved in that time period. But it, to me, it really, it like, it highlights the the importance of yes. There's a lot of stuff happening, and there's there's expectations you have for each other. Make sure those are clear, and make sure you're staying aware of each other's expectation. Make sure you're staying aware of each other's lives, because one of the things that that person told me that was really true was like, I don't feel like you want to be here, and I was just like, Yeah, no, I you're right. I'm here because I'm trying to prove myself to somebody else, and you're you're that's correct, right? That doesn't mean I can't help, doesn't mean I can't add value, right? If I'd just been assigned to go there, it's not like I can tell, I could leave the company, but if the company insisted, like I still have to go there, arguably. But it's like, it's a, it's a was a fair call out. And for me, you know, a call that I made towards them is like, I need you to do that job of the prioritization and you're not doing it. And, you know, again, that that was a, a continuous debate.
1: You have described that experience, those experiences as formative. Like It's Mm -hmm. interesting and it wasn't that long of a time compared to your overall career, but you reference it often. What did you learn about your own limitations through that experience
0: as a leader? Hmm. I think one thing that I learned, if you've been on a high-functioning team, like a really, really high-functioning, sort of well-oiled machine type team, and you move for whatever reason to a team that functions differently, and you could say maybe not as high functioning or not focused in the ways that you're used to or whatever, depending on how judgmental you wanna be about it. You have to recognize that your world is now different and the way you approach change is now different. The trust that I would had when I was doing the big other project did not just follow me into this new team. And there's no reason it should have. But for some reason, I felt, well, since I've proven myself to some extent doing this other big thing, I should be proven everywhere now. Everybody should just accept what I'm saying. And it, that sounds very prideful. And in some ways, it was. It was very much like, I know what better looks like. And I, I remember a time a designer came to me and he said, I and man, we disagreed a lot. I disagreed a lot with this designer, but he was a wonderful guy. I learned a lot from him. And this was one. He came and said, hey, I was talking with the other folks and you know, there was some frustration expressed around how we're working and stuff like that. And I brought up that like, I'm good at design and you know, you're good at, at a and and whatnot, whatever your, whatever the disciplines that were there was, and maybe Ben's here because he's good at the process stuff. And maybe we should listen to him when he talks to us about process stuff. And I tell you, that was an emotional moment to have him kind of express that to me. But one of the things he followed up with is it's much it would be very helpful if I knew why you were changing what you're changing. Because, and what I realized is like, I, I thought I'd said, I thought I'd said like, well, this is why I'm doing this in this way. This is why I'm doing this in this way. But I realized that like, I hadn't actually prioritized them understanding why I was making the changes I was making. I was sort of assuming that like, because I'd come from a place where that trust was already so established that when I went in and I said, Hey, let's do this in a different way that people would get on board. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, you, you know what you're doing. You're an expert in your craft. And I remember actually sometimes expressing frustration of like, do they not understand that, like, this is a craft and I'm, and I've trained at being good at it. Like, I'm good at this stuff. And I can help them. And that's what I'm trying to do. And why are they so, why are they so against me? Why won't they listen? But there's this, when you're a leader, you, it's your responsibility to some degree, to a point, there's unreasonable people out there, but it's your responsibility to build trust and to explain why you're changing things. Because as a leader, the decisions you make impact others in huge ways, you disrupt their life. And so when when you're a leader and you make a mistake, it's different than if you're, I don't know, a, a 3D artist and you make a mistake. If 3D artist makes a mistake. Got it. You made a mistake. There's a, There can be a cascade of effects down the chain if that mistake isn't caught. But most often it's like somebody comes to you and says, hey, you made a mistake. Like, can you redo that so it's not a mistake, right? Can you make it better? For a leader, you don't even realize you made a mistake until you've negatively impacted a bunch of other people. And be aware of that. And be aware that actually a lot of times those people will be willing to go through with your crazy ideas and even tolerate the mistakes you make if you do it, The your responsibility of, of at least trying to get their buy-in, hearing them out, and and then you know getting them to a place where they can say, look, I may not agree with the changes you're making to the process, but you've explained it, you've heard my objections, and you're going forward, and this is what you do, this is your expertise, I'll try it, I'll, I'll go with you, right? I can disagree and commit to this. And if you could, if I could have gotten the team to that place, instead of just saying, and it's funny because I, you know, I don't think of myself as this sort of person. I didn't think about myself as this sort of person then until this guy brought this to my attention and told me, I'm so glad he did. Like, just, could you tell us why you're doing what you're doing? I want to know, like, it would help me support you. If I knew why you were changing our stand up or having us sit differently or, you know, shifting like putting deadlines around certain parts of the processes or whatever like all these things I was doing so another one that I think was big is I went from being somebody who was always trying to tell everyone it was okay like no don't worry it's fine don't worry I've got it don't worry because that's what a good leader does right that's what a good leader knows there's a very big difference between something being good and looking good And in fact, some of the most effective leaders in the world, I don't think are particularly effective because I think what they're really good at is making everything look good, but they can be perceived as effective inside of companies. And it's very difficult to parse that difference. It's incredibly difficult because there's many different ways to have things looking good. It might be everybody likes you. It might be, look, some some number or some metric is going in the right direction. There's all sorts of different stuff that someone can basically control and then use that to control a narrative that allows them to say, look how effective I am. So I was definitely partially in that trap. I switched after this point to being almost brutally, and I think for a lot of people, uncomfortably honest. When, when someone would come to me and they would say, hey, is this on, is this on track? I would, became really comfortable just saying no. It's not. And they sometimes they'd be like, whoa, whoa, because they're so used to having the leader at the team level or the leader at the like, whatever that layer below them is, middle management, even senior leaders to other senior leaders. Like you're so used to having that person say, yes, I've got it. Don't worry. If the answer is no, tell them no. And if they can't handle that, recognize that's on them, not on you. You're actually trying to be honest. Now, it doesn't mean you get to say no and toss your hands up and not care about it. Often it's no, and here's what I'm trying to do. And here's how you might be able to help me. I mean, Aaron, you worked with me a little bit on player platform. I was the guy who would walk into the room and they'd be like, how's everybody doing? And Everybody would be like, green, 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 green. And Ben would be like, triple red. What? And I'd be like, here's triple red and here's why. And I even sometimes to the point of saying, I don't believe that all of you are green either because I hear too much and I've seen too much of this part of the project. What's going on? You know, and so that idea of like being... Honest, being clear with the leaders above, being clear with the team, a lot of that, you know, both of those ideas of like what I learned were actually about transparency of information and getting buy-in and being okay with something not being right and and being willing to to say that out loud. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that. It was recorded a bit ago, but that was pretty much the end of it. And then we went into our old outro, so I'm just going to close up with this. Just a quick recap, so I talked about my second time working with the champion team at Riot Games. I hope this provided some insight into what it means to lead creative teams and also some of the unique challenges of content creation in the game space. Until next time, this is Building Better Games. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben.
1: If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, Shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.